I can still hear her, my wife. Oh, honey, how you forget what the year is. It's 1939. My thin, high-pitched, wispy voice that you remember oh so well. Her, her little tin cup voice. Her voice of twinkling bells. So, there are no fun facts here today. We only have sad facts. 1939 is a heavy year, and... um. I, I think we should just kind of state up at the top that we don't have any fun facts for you. No rock facts either. No rock facts, just sad facts. And um, the biggest one, obviously, is that this was the year that Best Dance Direction was removed officially as a category of the Oscars, never to be seen again. Second to that mm-hmm. is World War II started. World War II also started. You know, the one of the biggest cruelest definitely most talked about by your dad wars and uh yeah it's it's going on it's happening right now europe is ablaze with nazis and the last fact we have for you is that um in 1939 you can't take it with you one best director and best picture this is also a sad fact this is also a sad fact My name is Mavis Evergreen, and I'll be your critic. I'm sure you've been absolutely aching for it. I'm here to talk about feminism. I'm here to talk about racism. I'm here to talk about plot, and I'm here to talk about capitalism. Mm-hmm. My name is Andres Reyes. Normally, I try to focus on kind of the history of film and the history of cinema when I can. I also like to focus on cinema kind of from a socialist lens. And let me tell you what. We are going to be talking a lot about capitalism Today. Tonight's the night. Tonight is the night. You're here in the news. Andy, will you give us just a brief summary of You Can't Take It With You? Sure thing. I got my piece of paper right here. You Can't Take It With You. Directed by Frank Capra. Starring Gene Arthur, James Stewart, Lionel Barrymore, and Ed Arnold. New York is awash with Wall Street bankers doing banking things. One of these people is big Wall Street businessman. Watch Andy desperately scroll for a name. (laughs) Anthony P. Kirby. He's in the midst of a huge financial acquisition. He has purchased up all of the land that his rival needs in order to expand his factories with the hopes of being able to squash his ability to expand, buy his factories, and monopolize the entire munitions manufacturing process in the United States under one name, his, and under one president, Kirby, his son, Tony Kirby. At the same time, he's being foiled. One of the properties just won't sell, and if that property doesn't sell, his plan is completely ruined. That property is owned by local fucking weirdo grandpa vanderhoff um played by the esteemed lionel barrymore who is just kind of a weird dude he just runs around eating peanuts telling empty platitudes to people he gets one of the um real estate financial people to just come back home with him it's apparently a thing he does he'll just pick up people and be like follow your dreams live at my house as we meet vanderhoff's eccentric and weird family we're also kind of given glimpses into the erudite and luscious life of banker kirby we find out that tony kirby has fallen deeply in love with alice sycamore vanderhoff's granddaughter this poses some problems as while tony is kind of a black sheep only son of his father alice is not so hot on them introducing their families to each other in a non- politically arranged setting so as to mitigate her family's ability to be weird so that she can get the approval of his father so that they can be married. Tony decides to go the day before their arranged meeting so that their families can meet as they are because he thinks this will be a good idea. Hijinks ensue, everyone goes to prison and also court. And in the midst of it all, Grandpa Vanderhoff manages to teach us all a lesson about what it means to really lick a boot. Alice and Tony have a bit of a falling out. Vanderhoff sells his home. 
Kirby feels bad, cancels his monopoly. He plays harmonica with Vanderhoff. They both reconcile, and the movie ends with Tony and Alice, soon to be married, slut. So let's just let's shoot the elephant in the room. Frank Capra failed us when we needed him we most. Needed him. Well, that's not true, actually. This is when we needed him the least. We just we just came off the heels of a pretty hot flick, and we were like, you know what? We're just gonna have a little bit of Frank a little bit of Frank Capra to. to to wash down this meal, right? Like a little bit of a little bit of good to wash down the grate, and he managed to not even meet that bar. No, disappointed in our boy Capra. I'm taking him off our wall of boys. Mm-hmm. You know the, the wall of boys we have here in the studio. Itchler wall of boys. No longer can he remain. And I I think we had stated off air that we had this theory that like if it's based on a book, it's better, and if it's based on a play, it's worse. And I think that becomes more true the longer we go on. Played a movie that route zero out of ten. Yeah, I feel like the the we're gonna talk a little bit about film history before we get really uh, really into the deep shit. But like a lot of early film history takes its visual style from the stage when it is based on a play, and that's bad because the there are moments of severe artifice in especially like this movie and in the Grand Hotel where you can just feel the movie wanting to be a play. You can feel it wanting to be corralled in by a stage limited in that way and because of that a lot of choices have to be made to like maintain that artifice that is just detrimental to the movie also this movie's fucking long it's really long it is two hours and five minutes so it feels like three yeah yeah in books you naturally have to cut a lot but in plays they're pretty one-to-one brought to stage Mm -hmm. i guess they were at stage brought to film and no, you shouldn't do that. The the th- I feel like we've talked about this before, but like when you are at a play, you are experiencing something else than when you're watching a film, and it just doesn't work. I I fully believe that back then those feelings were probably similar, right? When movies were still kind of like a new thing, mm-hmm. but we we're well into the era, right? Where like movies movies are a thing that like the average Joe can do. And Mm -hmm. so if you can, if you were rich enough to have seen this play on stage, your, your reaction to this would probably be, well, this is fine, but like, this is for the pores. Yeah. If, and like, you should really experience this on stage. And I think that that sentiment kind of still exists today. Oh, for sure. But back then I think it was a lot easier to swallow because film hadn't yet, defined um, itself defined itself and also you didn't have like an entire generation of people who grew up just in intimately knowing the language of film mm-hmm. without having to be taught it yeah. like there are people in this era who know what it's like to live in a world without movies yeah they're still around right like this there is- are still people who are too poor to even afford going to movies like we talk about like theater being a bougie thing and i definitely think that's true and i think a big part of movies was like taking theatrical productions and making them more accessible in film but that more accessibility is like middle class accessibility yeah and there's definitely a point in this movie where they definitely take uh i think what is supposed to be like a big stage moment and make it really big for the screen to make it make it more and i just i just don't is there an example of like a modern adaptation of a stage production that kind of works i i think when I think of like modern adaptations of stage productions, I think of very literal recorded stage productions, um, like Jesus Christ is Superstar done in Chicago. Hamilton. Hamilton and Disney stuff. Plus. And I think I think that's different because you still kind of get the ambiance of stage because like you can literally see the stage and you can see the framing. But I think when you do what these old movies are doing where you're getting rid of the borders, it like redefines it in a way that I think is detrimental. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about Les Mis, which which does uh, attempts to do the same thing, right? It, it's it's taking it attempts the to get art rid of, of the borders. It's it's a musical, but it's trying to get rid of those borders and make it more of a historical drama that just happens to be set to song. To be fair, our two examples were also musicals. Uh, Jesus Christ is Superstar is a musical, and so is Hamilton. You can see our bias. Yeah, well, I mean, I think these days, if you're going to be adapting something from the stage, it's going to be a musical probably, right? Like, Agreed. It's very easy now, I think, to adapt play the movie without having to keep the artifice. Anyways, so, limits. It doesn't gain anything from that, right? Like, it gains scope, and it certainly looks expensive, but the story itself isn't elevated by 
by it removing those borders. And in fact, it's kind of to its detriment because when people start singing, looking like they're historically accurate, it feels like everything's happening in like a weird bubble alternate universe. You have when you're doing a musical, I've decided to create two worlds. When you're doing a musical, you want to be a high school musical, which is where when someone starts singing, everyone is a part of the singing. So even if you are like, maybe this isn't literally happening, you understand that like everyone in the scene is complicit with the singing. But with Le Mis and with, I don't know, Dear Evan Hansen, the movie, it feels like one person is singing and the oh, rest I of the world isn't singing. The, the rest of the world is just looking yes. at this weird person or people. I think the only piece in Le Mis that kind of gets away with it is um the prostitute song because like other people are singing but they're like toxing and i don't think it's as effective i was i think one day more is like the big one right everyone is singing in that one everyone in the background is yeah. singing and like it's the but, one time that the movie manages to convince you that this is a world where people just sing all the time yeah you really you really have to if you're doing a musical establish that this is a world in which emotions are portrayed through song mm-hmm. that's really hard to do and it's funny <laughs> because off track. You know, we actually got a topic but i'm gonna bring us back on topic it's funny right because you would think that a, a regular old stage play that is purely dialogue-driven can escape this, but it doesn't. This world exists in a level of elevated, in, in, a, in a level of elevation, somewhere, but like not quite as big, as high as the musicals, but still higher than what you would expect to see in like a naturalistic film, and it's not convincing. Well, I think part of the problem you have with plays when you're making them into movies is the thing that is obscured now is emotion because on stage you have to literally say what your emotions are or how you're feeling because people can't see your faces Mm -hmm. so it feels so weird in a movie to not be taking advantage of like emotionally portraying things and instead having someone in a room zoomed out say something at you like it just it feels weird to me a moviegoer who is very used to naturalistic acting yeah and especially at this point in time that we have we've had multiple naturalistic acting movies so it seems like a choice and it's a weird choice would you how would you compare the the acting in this to grand hotel (sighs) part of the problem is a lot of these characters are just so like wacky tm it's Uh, really hard to talk about like looney tunes how did these characters feel so i'm going to compare it to another like wacky family like the adams family which is often also shot in like a pulled out way because it's a tv show and I would say, like, this family does not feel as good as the Adams family. They're just not really characterized by anything positive, I think, is the problem. Like, all of these people are characterized by why they're annoying or why they're weird, but it's not done lovingly. Yeah. It's done as a joke, but not like the Adams family. It's a joke how weird they are, but it, it's a loving joke. Like, we love this family, anyways. And in this movie, we don't really love anybody, and it's weird, yeah. except for the grandpa, and we don't love him. We see the world through the eyes of the Adams family. So yes, they're weird, but mm-hmm. the joke is not that they're weird. The joke is that the rest of the world can't seem to reconcile with their existence. Mm-hmm. This is this is not a movie about outsiders. This is a movie about weirdos and how we should laugh at them because yeah. they're weird. But also how like they're loved by the community, even though they <laughs> seem to be the most annoying people ever. They seem to be. There are just a lot of little discrepancies like that in this movie of like, nothing's really connected in a way that we see. We are just told things. Which works in a play. Which works in a play. Like when somebody in a play is like, oh, you know, you know, that store down the street really loves us. It's because, yeah, I don't, it's a play. I don't expect them to go to a store down the street and see the interaction. But so much of this movie is spent telling us about these things that at some point I have to ask, I have to wonder, like, why can't we see it? This is a movie. You have the power. Why don't you, like, even just have a single interaction with this community that's, like, a positive one? And I guess there is one positive interaction with this community, but immediately we double back on that because he sells out his community on a whim. This movie, this movie, and I assume also Plague goes on, like, 45 minutes longer than it has to. Everything oh could have God. been concluded in that moment. It would have been great. But it, it has uh, to keep going. I feel like we should just talk about the horse in the room, which is like the, what the moral of this movie is. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's like that's the thing we both want to talk about. Yeah. So the moral of this movie is you can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, right? Like this is this is this is like we're gonna start at the surface level and we're gonna dare our way into it. So you can't take it with you is an idiom basically referring to wealth. 
saying that you know wealth as a, as a as a means of living is pointless because it is the one thing in life that you can't take with you when you die. I would um, argue you can't take anything with you when you die. When you die, because you die and you're just dead. Like even if you go to heaven, you're still in heaven by yourself. Like you're not exactly taking anything with you, anyways. Mm-hmm. You can't take anything with you. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a way. It's a it's a it's a shorthand way of saying you know money doesn't matter. What really matters are things like friends and family, experiences, like life experiences. When I go to heaven, I'm gonna know Portuguese, and that's gonna make God love me more. <laughs> Sorry. Wow, insulted. There are a couple of problems with how this play positions this platitude. So the main tension of the play comes from big capitalist Wall Street banker, Anthony P. Kirby, and kind of middle America Grandpa Vanderhoff. Mm -hmm. Sorry, middle class white America (laughs) Grandpa Vanderhoff. It's true. Oh, a thing that we should state is that he's framed as being like liberal, and I can't speak to the time whether or not that's true. I can speak to now. The first problem with this framing, though, is of course that he didn't, he hasn't been like Middle America his whole life. He used to be what Kirby was and then chose to leave it behind, not because he felt guilty or bad for the things he had been doing, but because it just wasn't fun. He was miserable because of his wealth. And so the framing is not like you have, you're taking advantage of middle class America. And let's not talk about lower rungs. It is you should choose to have more fun with your life, which really avoids all the complicated problems about capitalism and exploitation. This is a movie that that finds the concept of isms to be laughable. Even our liberal main character literally says that like isms are just for whiners and we should be more like George... Washington, Washington, who didn't believe in isms. Abraham Lincoln or 500 other white people that he listed. The idea being that trying to categorize systems of oppression in any way or systems or even systems of upheaval, social movements, trying to categorize these things in any way to make them not only accessible, but also teachable is laughable. They're just whining about their position in the world. It's academia as farce, right? This is a very common viewpoint of people who exist in this state of privilege privilege and comfort right they don't see why people need things like social movements because racism was solved when we ended slavery that sorry it just struck me that like this movie exists in jim crow and is using that argument of like well racism has already been solved. racism has been solved because we ended slavery and oh my god you know African-Americans have equality now. They've, yeah, racism in America, by the way, just a spoiler alert, has yet to be solved in the year of our Lord 2022. The civil rights movement is not going to happen for another 30 fucking years in this, uh, as like when this movie comes out and they're already acting like African-Americans wanting more is selfish, is already selfish, right? Also, this is coming from our like liberal framed main character. Because liberalism is just centrism. It's true. It's baffling and it's it's hard for me to kind of like try to get across the dangerous things about this but i'm gonna try when you do not allow people or when you dismiss out of hand i should say people's ability to reconcile with systems either of oppression or upheaval you deny them the ability to elicit social change vanderhoff's entire argument for why capitalists should stop is not that capitalism is bad it's not that it's causing homelessness it's not that the accumulation of wealth within the hands of few removes the worker's ability to self-determine. It's not that hoarding ammunition during a perceived soon-to-be war is an evil thing to do. It's that it's not fun. And once once people realize that, once people realize that what they're doing is bad, they're just going to stop, right? I mean, come on. Part of the problem is the morality in this movie is not based in literal morals but in feelings right things that feel good are morally good this movie says and things that feel bad are morally bad but the problem with that logic is that being rich does feel good Mm -hmm. there's this like base assumption that i think still exists within like societal consciousness of like actually being rich is really hard and it's a lot of work and just like the stress of it will destroy you but here's the thing is it's not because you can delegate all of that away and the idea that like hoarding wealth is so hard that it will destroy you 
we've proven isn't true because we have like trillionaires and millionaires and billionaires and CEOs to this day in 2022 and they're fine, right? Like if it really was such a hard thing to do and you'd crumble under it as this movie proclaims, then like we would be constantly cycling through new people but the heads of wealth have maintained generationally. Yeah, it's, it's literally the same families. And the baffling thing is, is that this play has to go to such lengths to construct, to literally make up a guy who is capitalist and would, would go through this. But here's the thing is that this movie also shows us like 20 other capitalists. And at the end of the movie, they don't, you know, sing Kumbaya and join us all in happy merriment, right? Uh, they are still capitalists at the end of the movie. Anthony Kirby at the end of the movie is still a capitalist. The Even without this Monopoly deal going through, he is still a banker that controls, like, I believe he says something at the beginning of the movie, like 20% of America's finance. That's not nothing. He is still causing the deaths of homeless people. Just because this one fucking block of white Americans aren't being impacted doesn't mean that there aren't, like, Factory workers who are being maimed and killed over a la- over like lacks of you know any vi- any safety codes right doesn't mean that black people aren't being oppressed in Jim Crow South. It doesn't mean that World people War people in II, his literal house aren't being oppressed. yeah yeah people in his literal house are being oppressed. It doesn't mean that World War II isn't happening. It doesn't mean that the rise of fascism that was being perpetuated by American banks. And he was taking advantage of, yeah. They made money off, this man is making money off of the deaths of Jewish people. Like, that is a fucking fact. If he is a banker in the United States at this time, this is a thing. The movie doesn't want to touch on it because it can't. Because the moment that it lets you into that world, the entire emptiness of what it's trying to tell you completely falls apart. The movie spends... 20 minutes of its runtime making fun of the Russian Revolution because it can't fathom a world in which workers can self-determine. No, we just have to be nicer. This movie also sympathizes with Jim Crow laws. Like, there is a crow named Jim, and it's not like, ah, damn, that's terrible. It's like, haha, Jim Crow laws are really funny. And, uh... I just feel like you can't make a joke about Jim Crow laws without also supporting them. But yeah, I just, it is a film in which, in which it has nothing to say about the state of the world other than, well, rich people should maybe feel bad, but they shouldn't feel bad because what they're doing is morally wrong. They should feel bad because it's bad to be rich, question mark. Why is it bad to be rich? It doesn't ask any questions. It just offers reassurances. And I guess that's sort of the point of this movie, actually is like the reason it frames everything this way is so that everyone can be happy without insulting anyone so you can assure the poor middle-class person who's watching this movie that actually rich people will stop doing bad things because it just it feels so bad to be rich and it assures rich people that as long as you're a good rich person you don't need to feel bad this is the big problem with modern liberalism as it exists and as it existed back in 1939, is that the best world that they can imagine is not one that gets better. It's one in which black people are happy to be servants, middle-class white people are happy to be middle-class, and bankers are nicer to their workers and their slaves. And if that's the best world you can imagine... You're not exactly fighting for a brighter future for anybody. You're just sort of trying to maintain as other people actively try to make it worse. These are people... It would be like if somebody on the Titanic saw that an iceberg was coming and was like, well, we shouldn't try to turn away from it. As long as we don't turn more into Into it, it, things are going to be fine. The ship is sinking, my guy. No, I agree with you. And it's... I I think part of the frustration that we're feeling is that... We still hear these talking points today, like yeah. Just go watch an Aaron Sorkin movie. So like. shocking to to see this liberalism and be like, this is the same liberalism that we have to deal with today. Mm-hmm. That, like, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't actively make fun of like people who believe in racism, sexism, as the movie states, voodooism, but it does actively dismiss pursuing social movements like socialism and communism and it's wild because this movie 
cannot have its cake and eat it too. And it, like he literally refuses to pay taxes because he's wealthy enough that his taxes matter. And there's like a gag in the movie where somebody asks, where the taxpayer's like, well, how much do you make? And then he's like, well, I make $75 a year. And he's like, then I don't care about you. You're too poor. But I'm still going to pursue this old man because actually he's rich. And he's like, nah, the government is being stingy and I shouldn't have to pay for something unless I get something in return. And it's like, that's our fucking hero is a guy who's like, actually, I don't want to pay for road work. I don't want to pay for like the systems of government orphanages or schools or it's I get where the argument is coming from. Like this is this is a really like thorough kind of statement. And and I and I and, and I do in a way sympathize with the intent, which is that I don't want my taxes to pay for American imperialism. That's not what this play is doing, by the way. I'm just let me. I'm just saying why I sympathize with the idea of not paying taxes because I know that every dollar of my taxes, ninety nine cents of it is going towards America proliferating the war machine and causing death and other awful, horrible acts of war crime to happen to civilians all across the world. And only one cent of it is actually going to you know helping people live and have health care and eat food and have homes. And I. I hate that and that sucks but the thing is is that me not paying my taxes is not going to stop america from doing that right what's going to stop the united states from doing that is isms is collective action it's protest it's you know showing the government that we won't allow them to get away with this anymore this is just a guy who doesn't want to give away money yeah he is the same capitalist that Kirby is. And that's like the deep frustration within this movie is that they are the same person, except for one of them doesn't go into works anymore. But they are fundamentally the same person. Yeah, one of them put down a whip to pick up a harmonica. <laughs> Ooh. I'm a little angry about this. Um. <laughs> that's fair. I think this is a great segue to talk about the racism in this movie. Also, this movie's a comedy. This movie's a comedy. I feel like we always forget to state it, but uh, this movie's a comedy. It's got and it's some. In, it's got some good jokes in it uh, in like the first thirty minutes, but it's not that funny. We're not. And we're not. We're probably not going to talk about it much. Talk to me a little bit about the racism. Well, that's the, the comedy I want to talk about. So we'd mentioned earlier that they have a crow named Jim, and it's terrible and bad. So I think this is the most um, like active character we've had in a movie so far. And they're, yes. of course, playing um, stereotypes. Everyone in this film is kind of a character actor, but uh, not as much as these two servants are who are explicitly servants. They are never like around the dinner table when people are eating and they are ordered around all the time. So like they are explicitly yeah. in canon servants. Yeah, this is uh, these are the characters Reba and Donald played by Lillian Yarbo and Eddie Anderson, respectively. They... This is this is this is possibly our first like our our first kind of witness as kind of African Americans being used as a token, right? Yeah. Like part of the reason why you know this family is so great is that they have servants, African Americans living in their home. Isn't that nice? Isn't that liberal of them to be willing to eat food made by African Americans? These actors are acting. They have lines. Like they're not just they're not relegated to the background like all of the other um, African American actors that we've seen. But they're still being used in a specific way. Yeah, which is submitting themselves to the whims of this white family. It's true. They are the butt of the joke every time. Like most of this family is kind of the butt of the joke, but. It does not have the same tones and it, the same caricatures are not used equally. Like all women in this movie for the most part are considered dumb, but like they are not dumb to the extent that this female servant is dumb. I, I, like she doesn't know what a metaphor is and isn't that funny how stupid she is. I think I think and I'm going to I'm not going to say this lightly, right? Like the 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 emphasis with the white family is that they're silly, mm -hmm. right? They're not they're not stupid, they're just particular. Even the even the the dumber ones, like the the football playing dad is is a is kind of like a savant genius. He knows Chopin. He can play all of these amazing conciertos on his little uh xylophone. Xylophone, right? Like this What's funny is that he chooses to do it on xylophone. On a xylophone, right? He's eccentric, he's silly. But the the African American couple in this movie are stupid. And that is poignant. You feel it in every scene. Like 
They are tripping over themselves. They are specifically dancing in a very impoverished way when they are seen dancing. Mm -hmm. They're dancing like the pores, and we definitely didn't co-opt that dancing later. Yeah. <laughs> Surely we didn't actually go, wait, that's pretty cool, though. The, the movie wants them to be there as a show of acceptance, but it cannot escape the trappings of what it means to have Black people on a stage. They are there as an exhibit, not as people. And it is all the... I had mentioned earlier, we don't really get to know anyone besides like a couple of characters. It is all the worse that we never get to know these characters because they are so discriminated against in the humor. And like we never get to know anything positive or personifying about them ever. It's just... It's exhausting and concerning mm -hmm. right it's the it's the small joy of being like oh i'm so glad that like we are seeing people of color in movies and the immediate <laughs> regret of like no uh, yeah, it's 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 vaudeville the other character that we get is a russian guy also not great also not great this one is a little harder to kind of ace we're at the time of this recording we are currently living in a time where we're not feeling very positive towards russian people i would also like to point out that during the making of this film we were living in a time. We were living in a time like the the Soviet Socialist Republic had just been established relatively, right, in, in terms of like history. So having a Russian character was a statement. Again, mm -hmm. it's a statement of this family's liberalism. They're willing to have a Russian person in their home at all. Yeah, they're willing to associate with with such a person. Even though the movie does go out of its way to establish that he is not one of the Russians who's part of the revolution. He has a joke that was like, they were like, oh, how come you never write letters to him? And he's like, oh, all of my friends are dead, yeah. implying that they were killed by the revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. His friends were the good question mark Russians. It's one of those things where I don't, I don't know enough about it to really kind of pinpoint where this caricature is coming from. But he is very clearly a caricature of a man. Like he's yeah. got a very mean, he's very gruff. I mean, like the, the thing that really stands out when you get caricatures is he's two-faced. He's super insulting behind people's back. And then the minute somebody talks to him, he'll be like, oh, you're great. Mm -hmm. And I, that's not a trope we really still have to this mm -hmm. day, but it feels bad. Yeah, and he, and he is being played by uh, a Russian actor, but it just, it, it feels off in a way that makes me suspicious and I, I if i did more research into it i'm sure i could be able to like you can feel the you language you can feel when like a racism is happening like oh okay so we're like making fun of his russianness because the language of racism is lazy and yeah. you can see it also because we because we have a direct racism that we still understand to this day with with the servant couple and the way they're framed is the same way he's framed so do you want to talk about feminism yes <laughs> let's talk about the women in these movies. This is, uh, before we get into it, this is quite a cast of women. This is, this is quite a cast. We got... We the... have an old woman who writes. Um, we have the silly, bad dancer woman. Mm -hmm. yeah. she, her joke is that she is stupid, although not to the extent of the servant black woman. We have the main love interest. Alice. Who is the only really intelligent woman? And then we have the mother of the male love interest, who's like rich but stupid. Yeah, she's 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 definitely playing a, a very specific stereotype of a rich person. Yeah, she's into occultism. She does seances. She's she's a she's a, super a socialite and like insulting. Cares a lot about blood and family trees there's the wonderful line actually people in america have recently been re getting really into family trees and it's like oh i wonder if that has to do with the freedom of slaves mm, mm. Has, i wonder if that has to do it and also you know maybe it has to do something with like the rise of eugenicism yeah yep, 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 yep. so yeah the movie really hinting at just a lot of the worst things very casually and this is sort of the problem with comedy especially when you're doing like commentary on what's happening in a time is it's very easy to do the laziest versions of comedy and just be punching down. There's the saying that like comedy doesn't age well, but I think that saying should be that uh, most comedy doesn't age well. I think that you can have comedy that is good from old times. It's just that when you get the minute you get even a little bit lazy and the minute you're not a little bit critical, like your comedy is going to be punching down because you're going to be trying to make the majority laugh and the majority probably has a shitty opinion. Yeah, it's rough. But um, yeah. now let's talk about how these women are oh. treated. 
poorly. The only woman who's given any sort of amount of respect is the main love interest. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a fully three-dimensional character. She's a fully three-dimensional character. She is allowed to have opinions and be right about things, um, even though getting into their relationship is a whole different topic because I think we disagree on it, which is always fun. I don't think we disagree on it. We have different bullet points. Yeah. But yeah, the women are all treated, except for the main love interest, as being dumb. Um, The only woman who isn't necessarily treated as being dumb is the the type the typist the playwright the playwright but she is also like treated as being what is the word flighty she can't finish anything Mm -hmm. she's always moving on to new things so just like the stereotypes of women as well as the stereotypes of race and all that in full blow hyper insulting zero out of ten you shouldn't define your characters by negative archetypes yeah and and like it comes from a place of laziness for sure i think talking about how I think I think all this really does come to a head with the main character Alice and her mm-hmm. relationship with Tony. Agreed. Because the the movie's relationship between Alice and Tony, as it states it in the beginning, is that Alice is brave. Mm-hmm. She's courageous. She's been raised her entire life to follow her heart and do what she wants. Mm-hmm. And Tony is a coward. Yeah. He has lived his entire life according to what his father tells him to do. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm an astute watcher of a film. Mm-hmm. I can see the ending. Mm-hmm. The movie has to end with her teaching him to be brave, to mm-hmm. follow his heart, to mm-hmm. do what he wants. Mm-hmm. And by extension, him teaching his father to, you know, stop being such an asshole. But if that were me, I'd stop there. Mm-hmm. This movie can't stop there because this movie doesn't see one of these families as being right and the other as being wrong. They're both flawed. And so they both pull on each other. Mm-hmm. And so what Alice needs to learn from Tony is that appearances don't matter question mark and but that's not really a problem their family has it was only a problem because his family specifically his mother was placing appearances on them and she was like well I do want to get married so I'm willing to put on those appearances for a night for your family that is the problem so really, only his family needs to learn the lesson that appearances don't matter. It doesn't make any sense. And she also needs to learn to just love him. Just love him. She already loves him. The lessons she needs to learn, the lessons she needs to learn, I agree, are being presented as lessons she needs to learn, but like they come out of nowhere and make no sense. The movie, the movie, and by, again, by extension, the play, has to ch- has to break her character yeah. into two parts mm-hmm. into the beginning part where we see them in love and into and I should say the first 30 minutes part and then into the last hour and a half where she has to be a different person mm-hmm. until the last 30 minutes where she has to break again in yeah. order to go back to being who she was at the beginning of the fucking movie agreed because it, it and like no offense to Mr. Kaufman who wrote this shit but like that's bad writing. All the offense to Mr. Kaufman who wrote this shit. You're a fucking pig. I don't respect you at all. You chose lazy stereotypes to make people and you couldn't even make us fucking empathize with them. The base thing you need to do as a writer. You, you could not maintain consistency. And the, the biggest way that we see this is how Tony treats Alice. Oh my God. Sorry. I have to talk about how Tony treats Alice because they are in theory. I grabbed an apple off the tree of Eden in that moment. They are, in theory, the perfect loving couple. Um, Aside from, like, weird power dynamics that he is her boss and she is his secretary. Yeah, he is the vice... We're never really going to deal with those weird power dynamics. Nope, just the vice president of a bank macking on his stenographer. But they're, like, loving and cutesy, and they both say they love each other, and that's nice. I love the theory of that, of this push and pull, this teasingness. The problem is, taking a bite of that apple, is that that's not how it's shown. How it is shown is that he's a manipulative asshole, and she's constantly having to acquiesce to him, acquiesce. And this is, I think, part of the problem when you get into the idea of teasing relationships so often, teasing relationships in media, are a man bullying a woman with his status and position and a woman having to be like, it's so funny that you're holding my hand so I can't pick up the phone. And it's like, that would maybe be cute if the power dynamics were equal, 
But that's less cute when it's like she's going to lose her job for being bad at it. You're her boss. Every time, every time something teasy happens, there is a world in which I am terrified because it seems emotionally manipulative. It's, it's again, this movie can't talk about these things because this movie doesn't believe in, in looking at anything systemically, right? At looking at anything materialistically. You're the problem for seeing that any of these systemic issues exist. If you just saw things as they are, that is how they are. They love each other. And so that's all that's true. This is what the play wants you to believe, that because these two love each other, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. But it's not all that matters. This man has an immense amount of power over this woman, and the only thing that she can do to get back at him is to leave. Yeah. That's her, and, and, and by the end of the movie, she does. She does leave. For about 10 minutes. Yeah, and the problem is, is one, she's like, hey, uh, invite your family to my house. I know your family doesn't like me, but like they should meet us, and we're going to like try to be like make a nice dinner and stuff for them. And he... It brings them over early and it is so unclear why he's doing that because it's so manipulative like is he trying to sabotage their relationship is he is he trying to make her more reliant on him by knowing that like the, the family doesn't matter and they have an argument about it and he's just like oh well you were trying to put on airs and i didn't want you to do that but like until he says that you have no idea why he's doing this because he's so manipulative until this point he, he could want anything out of her the movie at first tries to present him as being stupid yeah but over and over and over again it shows that he's not he's not stupid he's he just he knows how to play the role that he's been cast in and he plays it well also a thing that happens that i i don't know if i would say this is a good but there is a breaking point in which he does not stand up for her and her family he <laughs> doesn't care he doesn't say anything and she has to verbally be like your family sucks and your family did this bad thing and you're throwing us under the bus mm. and that fucking sucks and we're not going to be together anymore and that moment's really good because like he should have been there for her. he should have supported her and he chose not to because he was a coward and so it works because she is brave and he's a coward and these moments are very good and it brings it up in the text like yeah. in the movie he tries to stand up for her at that point and she goes it's about fucking time yeah. like where were you the last like 30 minutes yeah. You're, like, your support means nothing to me now. I had to do the brave thing. I had to do the hard work. So that happens. She leaves. And then the next thing we hear from her is when that second break in her character happens where she's like, I love him so much. We just can't be together because of his family. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, you broke up with him because he couldn't change to be a better person for you. And we never see him change for her ever. Like... His fa his family just magically gets better. Well, his dad. And that allows him to be better. She just loves him again, and it's awful. It doesn't solve any... By the way, the ending of this movie doesn't solve any, any of problem. the problems. No. It doesn't solve any of the problems. All this movie manages to do is take all of the beliefs that mm -hmm. Grandpa Vanderhoff had at the beginning of the film and make him walk back every single one of them. Every single thing that he believes in at the beginning of this movie... He excuses, concedes, gives up, and throws away by the end of it. Mm -hmm. He throws away his community. He throws away his family. He throws away his belief that capitalism is bad. All of it. And for what? So that, so that our great capitalist banker can learn a little bit of humility and play a harmonica with him. It is, it, 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 like, this is beyond bootlicking. This is boot sucking. Like, <laughs> It is, it's kind of a great metaphor for how like centrism will always go further right um, with the idea of like we're meeting in the middle and it's like the right never really took any steps towards you and you gave up like so much ground to go to the right. And, 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 the movie, and what the movie does to him, it does to her too. Mm -hmm. She is only ever allowed to compromise or concede. This movie, I think at the end of the day has no core theme because even though the theme is literally the title, you can't take it with you. They never give it up. They never have to. The core theme should be, you should be a nicer rich person. Because that's what it actually is, is shouldn't rich people be nicer you, while they take advantage of it? The you? only thing you can't take with you are any themes in this movie. Because <laughs> they're, they're vapid, they're, they're a gas. You can't grab them. And there are moments in this movie that are trying to be about community and stuff, but they're all immediately undone like there's the scene where they're in prison and they get charged a fine of a hundred dollars and the community's like we'll pay that hundred dollars for you but you know what happens in the next scene they sell out the community and so 
any time this movie tries to be about something maybe interesting, they immediately undermine it. So the, there's literally nothing good I can say about this movie, even though you could take a screenshot of this movie and be like, oh, isn't this a good thing? And be like, oh, watch two more minutes. And you'll be like, oh, actually, they're against that. Or they don't think it's valuable. It has no message. So what was your favorite scene? What was my favorite scene? <laughs> what was your favorite scene? Um. um I, I think my favorite scene's cheating because it's not... It's not, it wasn't, it's not my favorite scene because of the movie. Okay. Um, but it's when, um, towards the end of the movie, um, the, the guy who he basically bankrupts with all of his scheming shows up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ah, oh, damn, he's going to like pull out a gun and kill this man. Just like in Mr. Teets goes to town. town. Yeah. No, he just kind of shows up and is like, just there to reiterate the main theme of the movie. You're going to die sad and alone, blah, 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 blah. And I'm so, I was going to come here and beg for mercy. But what I really should be doing is reminding you of how terrible you are. Mm -hmm. He leaves. And then he leaves. And Mr. Jack P. Kirby is there. And he's like, oh, my God, this guy used to be my best friend. And now he hates me. And he's so sad. And mm -hmm. now I'm sad. And then his son shows up. And his son's like, Dad, I'm leaving you. And he's like, well, but I, all these things I did for you. And he's mm -hmm. like, sorry, Dad, but I just, the only thing I cared about was loving this girl. And now I'm leaving because she's gone. Bye-bye. And then he leaves. And he's like, oh, God, my best friend is gone. My son has who just. Who I was going to make president. Who I was going to make president of this big, massive monopoly is gone. What else can happen? And then he gets a buzzer from the secretary who is like, we just found a dead body in the bathroom. And I was like, oh my fucking God, his wife died. And and we both just started laughing because that's what we thought happened. Like he literally lost everything in the span of five seconds. It was almost as good as um the great Ziegfeld where it's like the stock market has crashed. He was lost everything. It's yeah. like, we were just like, whoa. And then we rewound it and it's like, oh no, the guy who came in earlier died of a heart attack. And yeah, his wife fine. is fine. His wife is fine. But We've forgotten about her already. She's not the rest of this film she's not the rest of this film but for a for like a dead ass minute we were like oh my god wow holy shit wow. this movie's going hard and it really seemed kind of like the son had killed her in that moment like he showed up and he was like i'm leaving dad and then it was like someone's done in the bathroom it's like oh my god your son killed, killed your, your wife whoa now he's leaving there was a moment where i was like is this movie gonna end with this fucking like penguin looking ass motherfucker like killing himself and no no, no. this movie doesn't have the guts to do anything so that actually cool. after he finds out all this information he walks through a door and there's like a big window and i thought he was just gonna walk straight Same. out the window just, and he's gonna walk out the window and i was like god damn, damn. what an amazing ending this would have been Ah, uh, none of this happened no this this movie isn't but your brim. favorite scene is what could have so, been the only thing they found on his body was a harmonica oh i guess my favorite scene and by favorite i mean it was kind of interesting was the scene in which the like little kids come by and they're like, we're going to teach you how to do the big apple if you give us 50 cents. And then they get chased by police for dancing in the oh, park. Oh, yeah. Because I just love... Fucking footloose-ass world that they yeah, live in. Yeah, the footloose world they live in in which the police are like, hey, you stop doing the big apple in the park. And the big apple is the Charleston, by the way. For the paws. For the paws. The paws. The paws. The paws. The paws that be their legs around all willy-nilly. And then that's immediately ruined by him sticking a sign to her back that says nuts and then everyone makes fun of her and she never finds out about it and it's like oh get it he was trying to be cute but then it ended up being at her expense that's romance yeah the the, the little the the weird little kids teaching the weird little kids yeah. running around just run, these fucking little like sherlock holmes ass orphan kids just running around being With like big old drum and a trumpet yeah we're gonna teach you how to dance like when people say they want to go back to the good old days, that's what they mean. They right? mean I wish the police were fo footloose police. <laughs> footloose police? The only time we kill anyone is when they're dancing Man. in the streets. So, what are people's ages, I presume? Yeah, yeah we can. I only looked up the, the two kind of... Love interest, that's leads. fine. Yeah, they, they, no one else matters. Like I said, um, Gene Arthur, who we have... Before. We have had on here, I believe, like three or so years prior. Yeah, I, I think she was in her 30s before. Which I found surprising, but not like super shocking. She's a really good actress. Yeah. So I'm going to say she's in her latter 30s. I'm going to say she's 37. 
She was 38. Damn it. I was going to guess 38, but then I was like, that's too old. Born in, uh, born in the 1900s on the dot. So 38 at the time that this movie was made. Uh. And then James Stewart, who played Tony Kirby. He's really tall. He's bad at acting. I'm going to say he's pretty young. I don't think he's that bad at acting. I think the role he was given made him seem like he was bad at acting. I'm going to say he's like 35. 35? Yeah, he seemed like a, like a youth. Jor- Jorms. Jorms. <laughs> Jorms. Storms. Stormwork. James Stewart mm-hmm. was born in 1908, which made him 30. Oh, I was oh. correct. He was baby. He was baby. A f- almost a full decade younger. That's um, pretty rare. No wonder they didn't have any like chemistry, though. Yeah, he he really is. He he has some good moments. He does. He he's he's got he... some charm to him, but he's clearly hasn't he hasn't hit his element yet. I think. No, as he hasn't really like refined it. So Andy, I know this is gonna be really hard. Um, especially because we've we've been given out Oscars left and right. Left and right. Do you think this movie deserves an Oscar? I really have to think about this one. No, you don't. You, we both don't <laughs> think it does. Fuck no, you. No, it's absolutely not. Uh, we didn't. So we didn't talk much about this movie's directorial style, and that's because it doesn't have it's any. It's shot like it's a play. All of the like things that we were like praising Frank Capra for in terms of like his directorial style are absolutely gone from this film. Mm-hmm. He has been rewarded for conformity and that sucks so i wouldn't even give this movie best director like it doesn't it's not nothing about it nothing about it is relevant i genuinely don't think there's anything exceptional or interesting about this movie other than yay i guess we're bad to watching bad movies yeah wasn't it so awful the one good movie we watched we were spoiled for choice also this movie's kind of a warm-up for our next movie which is three and a half hours long no is it four? it's three hours and 54 minutes oh so just four the next one's just four Four hours. hours we are watching gone with the wind i have been your critic andres reyes and i've been your critic mavis evergreen you can find me at twitter at at mavis evergreen it's just my name <laughs> it's your name it's just my name you can also find me on twitter at royalty underscore valence and you can find me on my other podcast uh, with my buddy tony robusto at direct to dot video we just started watching uh pokemon the first movie which was it? Which was nostalgic? It wasn't good. Um, <laughs> it was. I had a fun time, but it wasn't good. <laughs> this is the only person Sorry. who sponsors our podcast is Karl Marx. This has been sponsored by Pentel, zero point five millimeter lead. And no, okay, legit though. Pentel has some of the best mechanical pencils in the business. <laughs> Look at this bad motherfucker. Weighted. That's a that's a pencil. They also have the red lead, which is really nice for like under sketching. Mm-hmm. The Graph Gear 500 PG525. Yeah. Safest in its class. I'm sad that the sexiest I've ever sounded was talking about a mechanical pencil. <laughs> that's accurate to your character. 